0: Welcome to the eleventh episode of the How to Business Show. Today's episode will be hosted by Sam Griffin and Matt Wilson, and our guest is the founder of Corporate Value Metrics, Ken Sanginario. On this episode, we dive into business valuation and business quality. Ken has over thirty years of experience providing executive leadership and strategic advisory services to private middle market companies, developing and executing business improvement initiatives, turning around distressed operations, managing M&A transactions valuing companies, and securing e- equity and debt growth capital. Ken is a frequent speaker at national and regional conferences and private business owner functions, and has authored numerous articles on business value growth, corporate valuations, mergers and acquisitions, and turnaround management. Without further ado, let's hop into the episode.
1: Well, Ken, I, I tell you, really nice to meet you. Um, Dylan has uh, told me a lot about you. I um, Uh and really impressive background you have, extremely impressive.
2: Uh,
1: And so, you know, our company, you know, we're in the uh, business brokerage. We, you know, we sell uh, businesses as well as commercial real estate. And so our focus, just a little bit about us is uh, we we sell mainly restaurants, hotels and, and industrial. Now, Dylan was telling me, you know, you know we're, we're small potatoes compared to you 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 do more of the bigger m a acquisitions and i was so excited and, and dylan goes hey do you want to get on a podcast with ken and i was like yeah absolutely if you'll do it i'd love to i'd love to learn a little bit more about you know what you do and you know you're, you're more right. the bigger fish kind of guy right and so uh, first off thank you so much for coming on we really really appreciate this um, My and you know we keep it you know obviously this will get pieced up so i mean we keep it really casual just questions just kind of learning a little bit more about you know you about you know kind of you know the m a world the the valuation world a little bit you know maybe we can help learn some more and, and even our listeners too i mean maybe you can educate them a little bit more and how valuations are done the process of it and you know hopefully we can get into some of those discussions and so if with further ado i'd love to get started if that's okay
3: absolutely my pleasure to be here, so.
1: Yeah, great. So let me ask you this. How did you get started in MA consulting
4: business?
3: Well, it was, um, hmm, that's a good,
4: <laughs> a long time <laughs> no, ago. No softballs around yeah, here. no softballs. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: and actually, it's it's sort of, uh, I, I got a taste of it back in, early in my career when I was in in public accounting back in the early and mid-80s, just, but you know, as a as an associate, mid-level associate in one of the big, at the time, the big eight CPA firms, um, working on some M&A transactions for some of the firm's kind of larger public clients. Um, but it just, it it sort of stuck with me that, hey, that, that seems like it would be really interesting to get more involved in someday. But then I, my path kind of took me out of accounting into the it, not out of accounting, out of the public um, world into private industry, and I was uh, my first job out of public accounting was as the controller slash CFO of a publishing company. And um, uh, two years into my stint there, we ended up selling the company. So that was that was my first sort of okay, I'm hip deep in in a transaction now, and we sold it to a large publish a large publishing company. And so that was the first time that I really was responsible for sort of running the whole due diligence, organizing the whole due diligence process. I did not negotiate the transaction, but I managed a lot of the tactical parts of getting it closed. And then uh, from there, I I, uh, eventually I I stayed around for a year after the new owners uh, bought the company, but then I left and I got recruited into a... Public company to be, it was sort of a almost a private, a public private equity firm, if that makes any sense at all. But it was essentially a public, publicly held holding company that that had a portfolio of very disparate operating companies that it managed. So it was like a private equity firm. They had raised a lot of capital. Amazingly, uh, I don't know if any of you guys are old enough to remember Michael Milken, but um, this company had raised twenty-five, uh, excuse me, forty million dollars of debt through Michael Milken's junk bond funds way wow. back and well before I was with the company. But um, and, uh, and so that's where they got a lot of their capital, and they they had used a lot of it to either build or buy some other operating companies. So they had they had a, you know, half a dozen different businesses. And so uh, my role there was was, I was all excited to join because it was going to be, hey, we're going to be making more acquisitions. We're going to keep growing the portfolio. But uh, what I what I realized shortly after joining was that, um, as with a lot of the Milken deals back then, it was really a house of cards, because in order for them to get 40 million dollars, they had to commit to reinvesting half of those proceeds into his follow-on deals. Oh, geez. So yeah. that's how that whole and that's how yeah. a lot of us have worked back then. So and and most of those follow-on deals had gone bad. So this turned it this was really a company that was uh, they owed 40 million dollars at you know 20% interest and uh, their businesses weren't generating that kind of cash flow to support it. So that ended up being my first sort of throw it thrown into the fire turnaround experience. And that's how I, that was my first taste of become what, you know, that kind of changed the course of my whole career because it was a three year long, absolutely grueling turnaround and workout. I say engagement, but I was the CFO. So public, uh, SEC, you know, responsibilities, um, you know, ten different entities involved, ten or twelve different entities, uh, four different unions were involved, and uh, yes. publicly held bonds. I mean, wow. it, was, it was a an absolutely grueling three years of my life, but I learned. I probably got you know fifteen years worth of knowledge and experience. <laughs> and uh, yeah, in three years, and. Um, Fortunately, I had some great mentors because uh, the, the the company had hired a turnaround firm, um, just a a little boutique firm, and one of the guys was really really good, and he just taught me everything about the turnaround business and how to just how to do the whole thing, and uh, so that changed my career basically. And there was some there was some sell side m a involved in during those three years so i got more m a background there and so then
4: uh, yeah sorry just question for you ahead. yeah so you had mentioned that's kind of one an inflection point of your career i mean were there specific things that really kind of intrigued you uh versus you know some, some of the things that it kind of sounds like were just day-to-day that you were tolerating
3: yeah i mean it was um uh, uh, this company was in such deep you know deep shit yeah
4: yeah we, I mean, you can say four letter words on this yeah. show.
3: they were in default on um on their on on their covenants on their publicly held bonds they didn't even realize it i mean i had to write within the first couple months of joining i had to file my first sec form 10q and that was way before all the Sarbanes-Oxley, you know, right. stuff that came along later. But I had to write and sign a 10 Q. I had never signed a 10Q personally before. I wrote a 23-page MDNA management discussion and analysis. And the, you know, 23 pages was all talking about defaults and you know all the problems of the company. And I sent it to our securities attorneys at the time. And I said, look, guys, I don't know. How, I, you <laughs> I know, don't
4: know what I'm signing. <laughs>
3: I, I mean, I wrote all of this because I, I want to, it's a CYA kind of thing. I don't want to leave things undisclosed. And the uh, SEC attorney came back and said, I'm not changing a word. It's going in just this, just as, exactly as you wrote it. Nice. And that launched us into the, that really launched us into the, the turnaround workout part of it. But, um, I, I think what really intrigued me was just the sheer difficulty of like pulling something out of the fire and salvaging it and negotiating, like being part of, I didn't negotiate everything I had, you know, by myself. I mean, I was on a team that, that did all of this stuff, um, but I was like, you know, hip deep in all of it and um, just learning how to negotiate the impossible and Mm -hmm. pull companies out of situations that looked like they were, it was hopeless Mm -hmm. and have it survive at the end and be able to go on. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, selling assets along the way and, you know, dealing with with the unions, the teamsters and the longshoremen. And, you know, I mean, all these, (laughs) I mean, it was just, there were parts of it that were kind of scary. There were parts of it that were just like, but it, what happens is it, it like gives you a rush when it when you can do it, when it succeeds. Yeah, it gives you a rush like there's no other professional, um, you know, accomplishment in my mind, at least from my experience, that gives you that same kind of rush. Mm. And it gets to be it almost gets to be like a drug. Not that I've ever been on drugs, but I can only imagine. Yeah, like if you it.
4: could imagine, yeah. yeah, yeah, You
3: get hooked on it. You get hooked on that rush.
1: Yeah, I know. And, we, uh, we feel the same way. Whenever we do a deal, we get a close, or we get to, uh, right. we get to that. Infl- yeah, you, you gotta love it. We love it. Like you we know, I, we it. wake up every day. It's it's not work. We just love what we do. Yeah, exactly. Right there with you.
4: So, so when you're looking, yeah, when you're looking at these these companies that, you know, maybe on paper they appear to be helpless, you're like, "Oh, yeah, there's there's no way." And then you're pulling these companies out of these desperate situations. I mean, what do you what do you attribute that to? Do you look at it from a a, a people standpoint? Well, who's been running these companies for x amount of years or do you look at it from a balance sheet perspective? I mean, what did you find kind of most impactful as far as being able to accomplish that?
3: Yeah, what I learned, Dylan, was um, so after I left there, I I intentionally went to another venture-backed turnaround. The first one, I I didn't know it was going to be a turnaround when I joined. The second one I left, I knew it was going to be a turnaround. So I was kind of a glutton for punishment. But I went in knowing that the company had problems. I thought I could figure out what they were. We did figure it out. I went to work with a, a very knowledgeable high profile CEO who also became another mentor of mine in again, in the turnaround and recapitalization process and so forth. And that was a, that was a you know, multi-year stint as well as CFO of that company. And we raised, you know, $50 million and recapped the company and did a new rollout and went through an IPO back in 98. And, uh, oh. so there was just a, you know, there was a lot to it. Um, <clears throat> and then, and then, once that was on a steady state, i I was missing the rush again. and then i I left that, and I went and I formed a turnaround practice with another couple of guys that I had known for years that were in turnarounds already. Mm-hmm. But what I learned was, um, no matter the company, no matter the size, no matter the industry, there are if you know where to look, depending on depending on the stage of the company, depending on what they were doing just before they went kind of they they went into distress depending on the ceo's background mm. if i know like four or three to five data points on the company usually within a day or two i can zero in to what drove the company into distress mm. and that be- that became kind of a, an instinctive instinctual knack or talent or anything yeah, that, that, that's
4: what i was going to ask is if that's intuition you know which uh, or if it's just learn. uh yeah or if it's learned yeah you know that's a, it's funny you say that because yeah. you
1: know when we look at i can look at a restaurant's balance sheets if they have multiple restaurants and i could tell if they're failing succeeding if the restaurants are going to be shit, if the restaurant's going to be ran well i can look at that p l and i could tell you right now where that restaurant stands yeah, really because I've been doing it for so, I mean, I'm at 27 yeah. years of doing it, right? Yeah. So I, I know what a good P&L looks like. I know what a bad P&L looks like. I know what a good balance sheet. I could tell. I mean, we just, I mean, we just went to 14 different uh, restaurants and we looked at the P&Ls before we knew what we were going to get into, but surprisingly, I mean, you knew it was all management. It wasn't all the, just, just the you know, the operations, but I mean, not just the cost of goods, but just the management yeah. itself. Right. So yeah. it's funny. I mean. We're at a smaller eco level than what you're doing, right? I mean, you're in, it's, it's, it's a different stratosphere where you're at. But it's just amazing that it's still the same approach, just the different angles of the approach.
3: You know what? It's the same, you're right. It, exactly. It's the same approach. And if you were to work on a company that's 10 times bigger, it's the same approach. Just add a decimal point to everything. <laughs> you're
4: add, at. add a comma or two. Yeah. That's it's it. The same yeah.
3: thing, And it's, the problems are the same. Yeah. It's really amazing that the bigger companies—you would think they would be so much more sophisticated—and they wouldn't have the same kind of, you know, uh, tactical problems throughout. The, it's all the same stuff. It doesn't matter the size. Yeah. And uh, you can walk in. You, I'm sure, can. You could walk into an actual restaurant and just walk around for fifteen minutes, yes. and you can tell: Is this company going to be struggling, or are they going to be taking on like? Going for the moon, right? We, you
1: we, can can, tell. we can peg it in less than ten now. Yeah, yeah. I can tell you right now. Yeah,
3: and, it's the same, and any given day
1: of the week too. I could, either, whether it's a Friday night or a Monday afternoon, I could. We could tell you. Doesn't yeah, matter. yeah.
3: And so you you just learn that from from experience, and I, it's kind of the same way. If I sit with a, the owner of a company for thirty to sixty minutes, I can pretty much peg how this company. He doesn't even. They don't even have to tell me what their PL looks like. I can just ask a bunch of questions, and I know that I know probably are they struggling? Are they going to be struggling? And and pretty much why? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just becomes a you know like you I said, think where
1: it gets crazy for us is that when you deal with the public, like you you know publicly traded IPOs, and that's when that's when I guess I get fearful because of knowledge of that. You know when you get into evaluating businesses and they're publicly traded that's usually that's where it's like that's out of my wheelhouse you know uh but I guess you have experience obviously with with dealing with those kind of businesses
3: well but I don't deal with public companies at all okay. i mean unless they're on the unless they're the buyer i have dealt with public companies when i was on the sell side and they were on the buy side okay mm. and that's fine and i i actually enjoy that because um it's when it when it's a private buyer on the other side of the deal you can only learn so much about them.
4: Yeah. Right. The, the public company has got to be, have yeah. all their paperwork in order, right? Yeah.
3: Yeah. When it's a pub, Oh, did I lose you guys?
2: Mm.
3: I can oh, still no. see you. No, I, I can close. see you. Wait, are you okay? Yeah. 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 I thought I lost you. When it's a public buyer and all of their information is readily accessible, you can get inside their heads. They, you know, get inside their psyche about, do they need this transaction and why and how much they can pay for it because you know what their cost of capital is and so you know how much they can pay and still have it be accretive to them Yeah. so it's really fun dealing with public company buyers <laughs>
1: <laughs> i mean that makes sense right yeah because I mean, yeah,
4: it's yeah I another question for you you know you had mentioned you know mentor a couple times already i mean you know is that something you've always kind of Uh, sought after in your career, you know, uh, uh, a mentor, mentors, really key people? Uh, And if so, like, you know, what do you, you know, what do you uh, value as far as, you know, mentors concerned? It sounds like you've had some, some good partners along the way.
3: I, it's a great question. And um, I, you know, I wish I could say that, yeah, I, I sought out, you know, the best mentors I could find. They were totally by accident. Yeah. and they were awesome. I mean, I just was really fortunate. Even back to my public accounting days, I had a, a good, a great partner mentor in the in that firm, and then at um, pretty much every step along the way, I've had great mentors. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I maybe I maybe my part of it was to recognize just how good they were, mm-hmm. and to just be a sponge and learn as much as I could learn from them. I mean, I probably took advantage of them, you know,
2: <laughs> as <laughs>
3: much as but you know, when you're learning, when you're a young guy and you're a young professional and you're just trying to learn your trade and master it, um, if people know more than you, then I, you just gotta suck it up and
4: mm-hmm. you know. Are, are yeah, you I'm with you, Dad? Yeah. No, are, I get it. Are you a mentor to people today?
3: I I'd like to think I am. I try to I try to help people as often as I can. And that's partly why we started, you know, now seven, eight years ago, we started, um, this training and certification program and we started the software program, you know, a year or two before that, Mm -hmm. because I felt like I had a lot of knowledge from being involved in turnarounds in M and a transactions and in business valuations. Those are sort of my three specialties. Um, And I I felt like I had a lot of knowledge that that nobody had ever kind of put together in a codified way that could be leveraged Mm. to help either help advisors or help companies. Like there's a lot of slightly, there's a lot of overlap between those different disciplines, but not total overlap. And usually people are, they become expert in one or maybe, maybe two of those, but not all three and So they don't have all the knowledge that they need to sort of really leverage those knowledge bases. And I felt like I had that. And I, and I thought, um, I thought it was kind of selfish of me if I didn't share what I knew and put it into a, a, put it into sort of a mechanism that people could take advantage of.
2: Hmm.
3: And a lot of that came from everything that my mentors taught me over the years. and, And I just, I started developing this software package that we have as a way to make my little firm more efficient and more effective and help more companies, but then quickly realized that well, this is too big just for us because too many people need to be able to take advantage of this. So that's yeah. when we started teaching people um, how to do how to, you know, how to how to assess, diagnose a company really efficiently, but deeply as well and really know where the root problems were and to be more of a general advisor to business owners, not a niche advisor, because I think business owners don't, they don't listen to a lot of advisors who are niche advisors because they get a dozen niche advisors every week telling them that they need to focus on whatever that advisors niche is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They don't believe anybody because it's all, you know, they don't know who to believe. Yeah so I thought if if people can really have more of a holistic understanding of a company and be able to spot the weaknesses, the real weaknesses, the real constraints of the company easier, then they can make a bigger impact on the companies. And I mean, I gotta tell you that I it it seems like it seems like there's so many private companies. Well, you guys know the statistics probably as well as I do. of private companies are owned by baby boomers. They're gonna have to transfer ownership. You know, 90% of them are not sellable today. And and when you think about the fact that uh, how many, you know, they employ 25 or 30% of the entire workforce in the U.S. What's gonna happen with those companies when those owners have to retire or die or whatever, they have to shut down. Yeah, I I know. Competitors will pick up some of those employees, but what's going to happen to unemployment when all those companies start shutting down or dying on the vine and not, not be sellable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's like this to me is like this economic freight train bearing down on us and not enough people are like doing something about it. They're not enough people are paying attention to it and they don't know how to do, they don't know how to help. Mm-hmm. So
1: I think you're right. You uh, that's yeah. a lot you said, because, you know, we have a lot of businesses that we're selling right now that they are baby boomers, you know, they've got 10, 15, 50, maybe 75. The most we have, I think, maybe at 100, you know, employees, mm. but they don't have a succession. Kids aren't taking over the business. They're doing mm. their own thing or they don't have kids. And so we're catching that. We're, we're catching that quagmire of like people that have done, you know, specialty stuff. They grew their business from nothing. And now they've got to liquid because they want to retire. And so, you know, that, that definitely plays on the value of, of their business and and, it, and it's affecting employees. You're absolutely right. Because I mean, my gosh, we've got seven or eight businesses right now that are exactly in that. They're that they're looking to retire the baby boomers. They're all the red, there's no succession plan involved
2: Fair with, that. That. Mm-hmm.
1: you know, But because there's, here's a question I really wanted to ask you. And so I want to kind of get into it because, yeah. you know, we talk about succession, we talk about business valuations and, you know, One of the things that i really want to pick your brain a little bit on and maybe you can help me answer some of these questions is that you know we deal with valuations and and multipliers right now based on ebitda right Mm -hmm. you know and i tell people a a business or a real estate it's it's really it's only worth what someone's going to pay for it okay Mm -hmm. that's how it's always no matter what it is right but i want to get your opinion on multipliers and in multiples because there's so many different things that we look at, you know, we, we like, for example, and, and I just use restaurant spaces because I we know it really well, you know, things were trading between a five and a seven multiplier when, when, the, when the market was hot, right? Now we're down into the threes and maybe sixes, depending five, if, if it's, you know, where we're landing, right?
4: Depending on the brand.
1: Yeah. Right. And so I just want to get your opinion on that and and what's your thoughts on, on multipliers and, and multiples based on EBITDA?
3: I I wish I had open that I could share with you on my screen, but um, there's a somebody sent a picture of me um, when I was teaching in the Alliance of M&A Advisors um, M&A Certification Program, where I am standing up on top of a table <laughs> um, with a big the big screen behind me that says the 5x fallacy.
2: oh nice
3: that's nice that's me on my soapbox telling people how much i despise multiples of like even the multiples but i I think they're so misleading and they do such a disservice to business owners Mm. and i know it's just common language and it's you know something that everybody it just puts it into a really simple layman's terms but um to me i always say that multiples Um, you don't calculate the value by applying a multiple to a company. You derive the multiple by calculating the value the appropriate way. And then you can convert that into what multiple it it translates into for conversational purposes. But to me, um, you know, I, I always go through examples of companies that are, you know, and I have like, qualitative fact patterns on company A and company B. And I say, okay, if this is all you know, are these companies, do they have the same multiple? They have to, because they are exactly the same company. But if you drill down into even a handful of other qualitative factors, you see how different these companies can be. And so I think it's to lump companies into a you know, a five to seven or a three to four to six or whatever it is. Um, to me, it's all about how well positioned that company is for the future because mm. multiples are all looking backwards. They're all, it's a multiple of trailing EBITDA, but right. what if the company doesn't look anything like what it did in the past? It's not about the past, but the problem, the problem is uh, unless the company can clearly articulate and defend a credible future picture of what it's going to look like over the next 3 to 5 years the buyers are left with nothing except the past to use as a proxy so that's why they apply multiples but if the if the owners of the company really have a strong solid credible strategic plan laid out you know with overall objectives and tactical plans and timelines and re- the organization to execute it and they're tracking their progress and they're doing all the things they need to execute on that plan and the plan shows a much higher say cash flow in the future than what they've generated in the past then i think you have a much better chance of selling the company's future than a mere multiple of what they did in the past
4: yeah, to what extent do you think MA advisors should participate in that exercise, right? Because I think there's, you know, there's part of it, like we run into scenarios, well, you know, we're working with a business owner and they will provide a pro forma or they won't provide a pro forma. And in the latter example, you know, you have these interested buyers and they're like, well, what's their outlook look like, right? And then it's like, well, to what extent is it our role to articulate that? Or is the heavy lifting on the seller? Just curious on what your opinion on that. Well, yeah, was.
3: Um, it's a great question. So, I mean, a pro forma to me, it may not be worth anything more than the paper it's written on, unless there's a yeah. lot more detail beneath <laughs> yeah. it that can that that supports it. Like, how do that? Where, where do they? Where are they getting that? How do they develop it? Who participated? What are their assumptions and why? And are they really achievable? Do they have tactical plans laid out to, to drive those pro formas or is it just throwing spaghetti against the wall and, you know, hoping somebody will believe it. Yeah. Um, so I, I, but I think from the, from the say sell side broker or MNA advisors role, I mean, how many companies do you guys look at that want to be sold and, and you just say, sorry, I, you know, we'll try, but it, it's, it's unlikely that we can sell you, you're just not ready.
4: Yeah, especially at the number that they want because they've been emotionally vested in it for 20, 25 years and yeah.
3: So, I mean, my approach to owners like that is I say like, okay, you want X, what you think you want or deserve or need, whatever it is, is X. And I'm gonna tell you that your company, I'm gonna give you bad news and good news. (laughs) Say first of all, the bad news is, your company's not worth X, I'm sorry, it's really only worth half X or a third of X. But the good news is if you have the time horizon available and are willing to do what's necessary in your company, we can get you X plus. We mm. might be able to get you X times one and a half or, or two X, mm. but it might take you three, four, five years to get there. But if you if you don't do what you need to do to, to get there then your X, um, you're never going to get X and maybe you won't even get half X because frankly, your company is just not sellable in the condition that it's in.
4: Yeah. And just from a listener's point of view, what type of response do you usually get when you have those types of conversations with business owners?
3: Um, usually they're, I mean, nobody's thrown me out of their office uh so yet
4: say, yet <laughs> don't don't jinx it uh, can
3: <laughs> usually, they'll say, usually they'll say uh, uh and sometimes they'll say well well i just had my company value so i think uh, that's what i'm basing it on and i'll say well do you have the valuation can i see it sure it's right here and they pull out this three page nothing you know yeah. it's like and i said oh who what was this a drive-by
4: it's like My, single accountant firm type.
3: Drive, I said, "Oh yeah, this is a drive-by valuation," <laughs> and um, there's not. And I look at it, and it's just like nothing in here. And it's usually the industry, and yeah, we looked up multiples in the you know general industry guide, and it, they said it's you know three to five multiple. And so, okay, well, how long did that take them? That's yeah. nothing. So um, I can usually quickly dispel their expectations of. How they wh- why it's in their head that they think the value is what they think it is, um, and then it's kind of reality sets in, and they say, "Okay, well, what it, what is it that I need to do?" Mm-hmm. And I and I will ask some questions, and I'll say, "Look, I mean, in order to really answer that, we need to do a diagnostic of the company and figure out where the real weaknesses are that are constraining your growth, constraining your generation of uh, increased cash flow, and Constraining your creation of value, we can do that very efficiently, but we do have to go through this diagnostic. Um, but, but I can ask you, I, I can tell you just from the conversation with them, I can give them some areas that I know are going to be glaring weaknesses and glaring constraints. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, um, you, you, you kind of you, you're going to be telling them something that nobody's ever told them before, mm. and. They will, I I always say inside of like 30 minutes, they will go from being skeptical business owners of, okay, here's another consultant, another advisor, whatever, who's going to tell me something that, you know, is going to be self-serving to them. But inside of like 30 or 40 minutes, you can change their whole perception of you from being a self-serving advisor who just wants to get in and make a buck to somebody who really is interested and understands where they are in their company, where, what the, what the stage is, what their challenges and constraints are. Because if you can ask them questions that flush out the problems that they are likely having, and those are at the actual problems that they know they're having, and they didn't tell you, you just kind of flushed it out, then they're gonna like, they're gonna quickly start saying like, like, wow, this person really can understand where I am and I don't even have to, I don't have to disclose it.
4: Are there, so are there different approaches that you take, um, in those types of conversations, whether it be by business type or by seller, you know, strategical versus tactical, that type of thing.
3: Yeah. I mean, I will, I like to understand, um, the stage that the company is, are they growing rapidly? Are they in steady state? Are they in sort of slow and steady decline or deeper distress? Uh, are they in a buying? Or are they trying to buy another company? Are they trying to sell their company? Like, wh- where are they in their development? Where are they in their stage? Mm. And then I, I typically will ask questions that I know, um, I know what, what the weaknesses are in any of those stages. I know what the challenges are in any of those stages. I know if they're growing rapidly, the chances are that they're, they they might not be growing in a way that is um, creating value for the company because they 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 may be, but they may not be. So I'll ask them questions about what kind of growth they're experiencing, where it's coming from. Um, is it growth that they proactively went after or did it come to them? Mm. I might ask them about how they're financing the growth because we all know that growth just, Totally consumes
4: capital. Yep. Yeah, it doesn't fall on trees or grow on trees or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
3: Um, I'll ask them how the organization is handling the growth. Can they support it? And the struggles are usually somewhere in operations or human resources because they they can't get enough people. They can't train them fast enough. And um, you know, can your are your systems holding up? Are your people holding up? Um, I'll ask them. You know, I'll, I'll ask them how the organizational structure is. You know, how they're building the structure and all. You know, so just a handful of questions. If they're if they're in sort of mild decline, if they're struggling to grow, I will ask them about: Do you have a strategic plan? Are you is your cash? Yeah, a lot of the same kind of questions. Do you have access to capital? If you need capital to make some changes to the business, do you have that availability to make some improvements? Um, I'll, I'll, You know, and, and you just, you, you get to know where the problem points likely are, and if you ask them the right kinds of questions and get them sort of thinking down that path, then the problems will just surface, and then you'll be able to say, okay, with a full diagnostic, we can give you a better answer, but these are some problems that I expect that you're having. Mm. Let me
1: let me ask you this. It, I know you don't have a crystal ball, right? And so I was, you know, learning. I saw today that there's a 75% chance that we're going to be in a recession in 2023, right? So, what's your take on businesses and and you know, right now we're having an employment um, an employee issue, right? With you know, can't get enough people, can't get folks into there. What do you see? Do you see a big pivot coming up in the next? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what's what's your opinion on the next couple of years when it comes to businesses? Business is a selling, falling off. What's your thoughts and processes on that?
3: Well, I mean, I'm not an economist, but typically recessions um, make companies struggle. I mean, that's sort of an obvious answer. But recession, you know, some companies, it's it's almost um, binary. Some companies in a recession take off because their products do really well in recessions. Other companies, you know, take go go down. Mm -hmm. But um, a lot of companies will struggle. Interest rates are going up. So their borrowing costs are going to go up. It's going to make more difficult for them to finance their way out of, you know, challenges, challenges that they're having. Um, I mean, I have clients right now who were booming in the last couple of years, but they they're already starting to experience some slowdowns Mm. um, because their customers are slowing down and, you know, so I think it's going to be a challenging few years. Now, having said that, I I know from looking at a lot of statistics that that I've um, been able to access through uh, one of the higher end transactional databases. I use uh, GF Data as a you know I don't I don't like the the, the real low end transactional databases because I think they're so they're so opaque. You can never really draw any incredible correlations from looking at them, but but GF data is uh, if you're familiar with it, it's all private equity transactions. They're all very clean transactions in terms of the way they report their profits, their EBITDA, the transactions that that occurred, and so forth. And um, so I know from looking at about 20 years worth of their transactions in their database that good companies sell in any economic environment. So you we we may see like, if we look back to the, you know, the 08 and 09 recession, um, and I look at the multiples across different industries that um, that transpired during those years. I mean, there was a, I would say a fraction of a turn on the multiple
2: Mm -hmm. of the
3: of the multiples that they reported during those years. Now there were fewer transactions for sure. There were far fewer transactions but the transactions that closed were very close to the same multiple ranges that happened before and after the recession period so good companies will sell in any in any economic environment that's my conclusion but a lot more companies will be unsellable
4: so Yeah. yeah so you had you know mentioned good companies will sell You know in 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 down economies what uh i mean what type of impact do you think on you know buyers does that does that have you know whether strategic buyers or you know financial based buyers kind of a a mirror um as far as down economies are concerned what are your thoughts on that
3: well um so here's the interesting part that that i see there is that the 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 amount of dry powder private capital in the U.S. right now, it's got it's continually gone up in the last, say, six or seven years, mm. six or seven years ago. They start they, they were I would go to conferences and I would hear from economists saying there's a trillion dollars of dry powder private capital in the U.S. right now. And then within a year or two, it went to two trillion. And then a year later, it went to three trillion. And now what I'm hearing is like five to six trillion dollars mm. of dry powder private capital in the U.S. right now. That's private equity, venture capital, uh, family offices, angel funds, even corporate um, capital that it was earmarked for acquisitions. But the thing with the, the private equity and the venture capital and even some of the angel funds is those, those funds have limited lives. And even today, I think partly why multiples, multiples, even there we go with the multiples, but why <laughs> multiples have been so high in recent years is because there are so few, there are so few um, deals that are of high enough quality and high enough value to attract that capital that when a good high quality company comes along, it's like a feeding frenzy. It's like a bunch of piranha coming after this deal wanting and they and they they have to deploy their capital or they will have to release their limited investors from the commitment to fund transactions. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these funds have 10-year lives. And by the time they get you know seven or eight years into that fund, they start panicking because if we don't deploy this, we're going to have to release our partners from their commitments. And guess what that does? That cuts down on our you know, the, our three percent fees that we take as a private equity firm, our management fees, right, on committed capital. Yeah. So they start bidding up the multiples of these deals. I mean, I'm working with a client right now. I'm the I'm um, it's a sell side engagement for me, it's a sizable transaction. Um companies valued at, at about a hundred and twenty million dollars. And um we're we're in due diligence with the, with the buyer, but there even, even now that we're in due diligence, there are six or seven private equity firms who just won't like, they won't go away. They, mm. just, they keep coming. It's the same ones. And they keep coming after the owner saying like, you know, please, please, whatever it takes, just tell us what we have to do. Tell us how much you want. Tell us, uh, it's like, we
1: deal with that on a day. We know we have 17 capital firms that are partners with. We deal with them on the daily basis. We know exactly where you're coming
3: from. Right. It's unbelievable yeah. because they have to deploy that capital.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, so in if- a recessionary period, there are even going to be fewer deals for them to go after. So that's why I think like multiples won't erode that much. I don't think.
2: Yeah.
1: But
3: there will be fewer transactions because there will be fewer companies that, that are of high enough quality
1: because right, they wouldn't hit those markers yeah you i see, mean they yeah. have to hit those they have to hit certain markers for them to de- deploy that capital right so even yeah. all the cream will rise right but all the crap will just fall off but yeah. then that's when unemployment but, kicks in right because then people don't have jobs because they're not sellable products
4: yeah but from a, but just curious to your opinion you know from a, a bigger picture perspective I and mean, do you think it's attributed mostly to people being and i'm oversimplifying people being too picky or just this good deals are just there's just not a lot of them out there, right?
3: Well, most private equity firms and venture firms, um, even even corporate acquisitions to some degree, though maybe not as much, they they don't want to buy fixer uppers.
2: Mm-hmm. They,
3: they want to buy really strong, healthy companies and put in the growth capital and step on the gas pedal, right? That's how they wanna make their money. They they don't they I mean, they used to do a lot more financial engineering and everything. But that's kind of kind of gone. Not as many firms are doing that kind of wealth or value creation anymore. It's really exactly. like they want to step on the pedal, go buy some more companies, some add-ons or whatever, grow organically, open new markets, do all that kind of stuff. They don't want to put their money into a fixer-upper and just to get back to a steady state from a company that is otherwise declining.
4: Yeah, to, you know? just to then reinvest again. Yeah, makes sense.
3: They
1: don't, yeah. and, and you're right, the financial engineering has gone away, especially in our world. You know, it's it, they will be equity partners, they'll still leave a little sliver for them, but it's mainly, a, it's an acquisition. Yeah, you but, know?
4: but from a, from a seller standpoint too, it's always an interesting conversation. You know, when you're having a conversation with someone, say, so, oh, I wanna sell my business for 10 million. It's like, well, it's only worth five, but then they're like, oh, yeah, but you know, if you there's all this growth potential and stuff is, yeah, well, someone's gonna have to spend 5 million to then be able to grow, so it's interesting, yeah. Yeah, we get a lot. Oh, of that.
3: Yeah, when I hear that, Dylan, I I will take them down the path of okay, let's let's play that out. There's you know all this growth potential. How like how will you go after it? How will you capture that growth? Tell me about your team. Tell me about your systems. Tell me about your you know organizational capacity. Who's going to do it? How are they going to do it? How, how are you going to handle it? <laughs> how much does it cost? What about your facility, your capacity of your facilities? I mean, you start taking them down a path and they're like, oh, well, you know, we, we, we haven't thought through completely, we just know there's a lot of growth. Well, okay, well then, why is somebody gonna pay you like a premium for some potential that is just kind of out there in your, in your head without a solid plan? Now, if you wanna spend the time and we really lay it lay out a strategic plan to go after that growth, and you start down the path of executing it so you can prove that it's real, well, sure, then we have a story to tell. Then we can maybe go after another couple of turns on the multiple. But without that, it's just pie in the sky.
1: Well, I'm gonna pivot a little bit. So we really, really, and, and thank you for creating the VOP software. We, we love it. I know Dylan and mm-hmm. and the team, they, they use it uh, and, and, uh, and it's really, easy. It's not as cumbersome as a lot of the other ones, but for our listeners out there who aren't familiar with the the value opportunity profile, the VOP software, you developed it. It's at a high level. Can you kind of tell us what it is? Uh, how does it work and go into a little bit of detail on it if you don't mind? Sure.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a software package that is a, it's a diagnostic tool to be able to understand a company, any company, any industry, any size, across end-to-end, where the where the constraints, where are the strengths, where are the weaknesses, where are the constraints in that company, and it prioritizes them according to how important that particular area of the company is in terms of the future growth potential for the company. So, <clears throat> um, depend, again, depending on the depending on the stage of the company, it will have different strengths and weaknesses, but this is a way that very efficiently, just by walking through a questionnaire with the the leadership team of the company and asking them questions to help them kind of self-diagnose, this is the holistic approach that I was describing earlier. Mm -hmm. You walk through and you ask them questions about different areas of the company and they discuss and debate with each other how well developed the company is. So we're trying to get them to self-assess with our with our um, guidance as or your whoever whoever's running the engagement um, guidance to make sure they understand where the what the questions are really asking, and then they score themselves on it. And at the end of that um, interview process, which can take anywhere from a couple hours to a whole day, but that's <laughs> far less time than i used to spend in my turnaround practice where it would take weeks to yeah, you know yeah. initially to diagnose a, a company
4: i'm glad so, i'm glad I'm glad you brought that up and sorry to interrupt you but before i forget um you know like we always try to find a balance in in getting the information that we need to you know to do the potential clients you know service the, the, the best that we can but, but we also run into scenarios where like we're just overwhelming them right it's just like i need you know in theory you need a hundred things but it's just like well do i ask for all hundred at once or do i ask for 10 initially mm-hmm. and which 10 like how do you go about balancing getting all that you need but getting it in a strategic way so you actually get that information
3: well with our process it's a simple it's a simple interview. You sit down at a table, like where you guys are sitting, with the leadership team, and that's usually five or six people, sometimes fewer, sometimes more. But um, and uh, and you just you just walk through this standardized questionnaire, mm. and 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 you're asking about the level of maturity of the company in di- in a- across a whole bunch of different categories. Yep. And the questions are self-evident in terms of like what would constitute them scoring themselves a 10 versus a zero or somewhere in between. And uh, the leadership team, it's amazing. It's an amazing experience because the leadership team often disagrees with each other. One person will say, <laughs> I think we're an eight or a nine. No. And, yeah. and then their counterpart will say an eight or nine. I'd say we're a, more like a two or three. And it's amazing how the, how different, the perceptions are of people on leadership teams. I mean, I've had teams that didn't even, couldn't even agree on what their core product was in a room together. And they've been working together for years. <laughs> and um, so well. <laughs> this, this is a process, depending on the size of the company, like for a small company, um, it, it would only take a couple hours to go through that questionnaire. And you get a whole qualitative report that shows all the strengths and weaknesses of a company and it prioritizes where they should spend their time to alleviate the weak points first and then it there's a financial template where you uh, you or the or the client populate the their their actual financial results for a few years and then it uses the qualitative assessment to value that company based on its financial results so the qualitative assessment Kind of develops a risk profile on the company, and the risk profile impacts the value of the of the financial results. So then, what you can the power of that is you can show them, hey, in the first year, if you do X, Y, and Z, here's the impact that you can make on the value of the company without even growing top or bottom line, purely by taking risk out of the company, making it a higher quality company. So basically more reliable uh, more uh, more stable for the future than what it is today and if you have 2 or 3 or 5 years to do that then we'll prioritize the things that you should work on each one of those years and we'll show you in advance how much you can how much value you can create and typically a private company we can show them that they could double or triple in value over 3 to 5 years double and three triple and five and that's a combination of qualitative improvements. And then the byproduct of improving the weak areas of the company is that they will naturally grow. Uh, They'll grow faster. They'll have margin and profitability expansion. They'll create more value. So they get a double whammy of increased value or increased multiple because they've improved the quality of the company. But the byproduct of the higher quality is that they will also have higher financial performance, greater financial performance. So that's where you get the sort of the, the, the triple value from where they are today. So I want to
1: let you know something. So we use the quality score. We love it. In small businesses and entrepreneurs, thank you very much for creating that. Because I'm telling you, it's great. We send it out to all of our clients. And anybody that owns a business out there, if you need that, you need to reach out to us. Because I'm telling you right now, it is a game changer in valuations, in valuating businesses. You know, we've been doing it for 23 years now. And I'm going to tell you right now, we love it. So, I mean, we're real big fans of it. Thank you very much for doing that. And and, and I want to switch to a little bit something else too as well. So, Dylan, he got his CVGA designation and program. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, you know, what that entails and and, and what's that designation for?
3: Sure. So the CBGA uh, stands for Certified Value Growth Advisor. And um, it came came to be because when we first launched the VOP software and started licensing it out to advisors, people loved it. Advisors loved it. Their clients loved it. And um, (laughs) the problem was, they would come back to us, the advisors would, and they'd say, okay, we it generated this awesome report. Our clients love it. It's a whole roadmap of things that they should work on. But now the advisors want us to help them implement all the recommendations in the report, <laughs> which of course is exactly what the report was designed to do is help advisors, you know, have longer term, more impactful relationships with their clients and, um, and they'd say, come back and they'd say, but we don't, we don't know how to do that. We don't, there's a lot of recommendations in here. We don't have the resources, the knowledge to do it. Can you help us? Can you teach us? So I started doing like one and two day workshops and that kind of thing. It wasn't enough, it wasn't enough. So ultimately we, it, it occurred to me at one point that, okay I've been to all of these other certification programs, MNA, two MNA programs, two evaluation programs, exit planning you know, turnaround management, all these certification programs over the years. And they all touch on uh, on the fringes of, of how to actually create value in a company. Nobody had ever taken all of these knowledge bases together and put them together and taught people how do you actually, in the trenches, how do you actually create value in a company? And I thought there was this sort of big need out there that would um, make people better, at, the advisors better at everything else they already do. And it, wouldn't, it wasn't going to be competitive with anybody else or anything. It just was a, a sort of a new knowledge base that had never really been created quite this way. And so I went out and I recruited about eight or nine other subject matter experts in different areas from um, sales and marketing and operations and human resources and leadership and like all these other... Uh, subject matter experts, and I brought them together, and we we developed a five day long training program that goes in somewhat of a deep dive into a in, into companies in terms of what do best practices look like in a company in any company generically across all of the main functional categories of the company, and every company has eight primary main functional categories. And so the the, the week long program digs into each of those, mm-hmm. and sort of teaches people what to look for. What so they understand what what uh, underpins the VOP software. The VOP software that asks a lot of questions, but people maybe didn't quite understand why it was asking. What like what's the relevance of those questions? So we dig in to say what do best practices look like? How do you understand where the weaknesses and strengths would be? How do you advise your client about how to fix things? When can you help them yourself? When do you need to bring in other subject matter experts if they are bigger problems to sort of uh, work with you in a collaborative way? How can you as an advisor be the choreographer, be the, be the, the quarterback of these engagements so that your clients don't have a dozen different advisors hitting them every week, but rather you're organizing and sequencing the, the resources that your client needs just at the right time for uh, at the right depth for the right extent and so forth. So we kind of teach all that. And then we have uh, some other modules like a, we teach people how to conduct a strategic planning program for clients, which is a hugely impactful process for clients to go through and very transformative. And then um, Dylan's favorite part, I think, was the, uh, the finance boot camp where we we just.
0: That's, yeah, I did like the finance boot camp,
3: where we just totally drilled into the uh, um, all the you know cost of capital, all the real technical aspects of cost of capital and risk, and how that impacts valuations and so forth. So that's a week long program. It's very rigorous, very comprehensive. We have a lo- a live case study that runs through the week, where it's a it's a long t- time client of mine. And we have a it's almost like a Harvard Business School case study that the way it's written and people uh, work in teams during the week. They're working on the case in teams. And then Friday morning, they have to the teams present their results and recommendations, their assessments on the case. And then um, and and the the actual owner in the case ends up showing up on Friday morning. (laughs) Oh, wow.
1: That's so cool.
3: Wow. He listens to their presentations, and then uh, there are a lot of decision points in the case where they have to, uh, the teams have to, like, advise, go this way, go that way, whatever. And the owner shows up, and uh, he tells, like, what the story really, what really happened in the case, which decisions he made at all those decision points, which ones worked and didn't and why, and where he is today versus where he was when we started with him. And uh, it's a it's just a great uh, it's a great part of the week that kind of ties everything together. And people people during the week complain about having to do the homework at night because they work on the cases at night. And I just say, trust me, trust me. Uh, you know, Friday morning I will ask you again, and and by by noon time on Friday, they're like that was like one of the best parts of the whole week. The fact that this case just pulls everything together. So,
1: how often do you do the courses?
3: We do. We've been doing it twice a year um, since it started. We were doing it all in person until COVID hit. Then we started. Then we were doing it only virtually. Now we're back to uh, we, in June. We did it in person, but now we're getting a lot of requests for people that want to participate, um, kind of online, not necessarily a live virtual, but rather online, even in like a cohort uh, format. So. We are now in the process of, um, all of the instructors are, we're in the process of converting the program. We'll still do a, a one session live each year. We'll still do one or two virtual, live virtual sessions, but we're going to also have an online program. It may be a cohort program to start. So it might stretch instead of all in one week, it might stretch over two or three months. We're still in the, the development stage of that, but we're trying to make it available to more people because I think they're, you know, the more companies that this this kind of knowledge can touch, the more impact we can make. And so, I mean, our mission is to to create value for other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I'm consulting, I can touch a handful of companies a year. Um, we have our CBGAs. Who are the existing people who can touch each one of them can touch, you know, five or 10 or 20 companies a year. But if we can make this knowledge and this software available to, you know, thousands of people and they can each touch 10 or 20 companies a year, then we have a chance of making a meaningful difference in that economic freight train that I see coming, you know, bearing down on us. We can we can actually help companies be a lot better prepared for the day when they have to exit.
1: So So that's if they wanted to find you online, where would they have where would they go?
3: um, our website is corporatevalue.net so easy there's a lot of information there they can click icons all over the website to get more information they can reach out to us directly Um, my email i believe is there as well and so uh, i'd love to connect with anybody who wants to learn more information
1: so sure that's great all right so here's the last question because everybody's going to want to know this right now in businesses what is the number one thing right now you see that businesses are struggling on and what can they maximize their business on from a high level? Just one big talking point in businesses right now.
3: I think the biggest, the single biggest problem I see with companies is they have no clear vision of where they're trying to go, where they want to go. They all say we want to grow. We want to be double. We want to be triple. You know, we're, but nobody has any, very few people. ninety, I would say ninety eight percent of the companies that we meet have no credible vision developed, like a strategic planning kind of vision for where they want to be in the next two, three, five years. They just don't know. They haven't they they're so busy, you know, doing what they do day in and day out, trying to meet orders, trying to keep finance, trying to you know keep their supply chains open. They never take the time to step back and think about where are we going? How are we gonna get there? What resources will we need? What organization will we need? They just don't do it. And and can can we lift ourselves as a leadership team? How do we get ourselves up out of the weeds and build the organization beneath us that can execute so we can be the visionaries, the organizers, you know, moving the company forward, but we have teams that can drive the the plan forward. So few companies have that. That's why they stagnate. That's why they if they are successful in growing, that's why they slip into distress because they they only thought about top line, not about how to service the top line. They all think, oh, we'll figure it out, we'll figure that out as it, you know, as it happens. No, that's how companies get into trouble. So many of my turnaround clients over the years became distressed because I call it growing for broke. They grow and grow and grow. They never pay attention to their weak points. Eventually their weak points become fail points. Mm. And, and they only learn when it's too late, when they're all, they've are they already disappointed customers, they damage damaged their reputations, all because they didn't do the proper planning up front. They only focus on one aspect of their business. So that's the big takeaway is, plan, 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 train, train, train. You've got to, you have to be prepared for the growth that you're trying to achieve.
1: That's that Ken, That was great. That's awesome. Mic drop. Mic drop. (laughs) That was a mic drop moment. Thank you. (laughs) Well, so some quick non-business valuation questions. So what book has had the biggest impact on your life or business?
3: Wow. Uh, um, there are a lot of books I've read. you um, I'm not sure I can name one book. I will name one because you're asking, but um, one that just pops into my head. But I will say that I've read a lot of books. I am an avid reader. I find a lot I find most books I read have some jewel in them. Um usually the books I can read the whole the whole book in a a weekend or something like that and I don't. It's not that I'm. I would subscribe to everything in the book, but I can usually find one or two jewels that I haven't read elsewhere that are takeaways that I can deploy right away, and um, and so I, I think my knowledge is a combination of you know kind of a collection of a lot of different books that I've read. I will say, from a as a consultant, there was a there was one book, and I love this author. The author is Patrick Lencioni. Um, Who's written a lot of really great, useful books for consultants and advisors? Um, The one book that he read that I, the one book that he wrote that I read that I think had a kind of a big impact on the way that I approach my clients was his book called Getting Naked. And it was all about... Um,
4: wasn't expecting that from you, I Wasn't expecting that from you, Ken. Well, yes. <laughs> that caught me off guard. <laughs>
3: um, it's a great book. It's written as a fable. And he talks about um, his fictional character, who's a consultant, and, and the way that he changes the way that a whole consulting firm approaches their client service and client development. And I, I think it's a really interesting and possibly paradigm-changing book for a lot of advisors to read. I would say if you're an advisor, you're working in the trenches with clients, read that book, Patrick Lencioni, Getting Naked. Um, There are uh, a hundred other books that I've read, too, that are also really good. But that one, that popped into my head when you asked me the question. Thank
1: you. I have not read it. I'm going to get it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, besides this, what activity that helps you? What's your one activity that helps you decompress? What do you like to do? Ah.
3: Ha! This one, you will catch you off guard too. Sleep. <laughs> 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 I'm a, I, uh, I'm a power napper. <laughs> um, when I get really fried, stress. You know, I don't. I really don't stress to be honest that much, but I do get like mentally drained just because I always have more going on than I can possibly handle. Um, And when I get really like fried from that kind of day, um, I can take a 15 minute power nap on command um, and it, it totally rejuvenates me and if you're t- talking about uh, you know decompressing or eliminating stress that's that's it. I mean, if I get really stressed, I just say like, "Okay, time out. I need I I'm just going to take a break." Shut and up. I can I can literally I learned years ago as a kid how to fall asleep on command. I can literally just lean back in my chair and I will be in deep REM sleep within probably 30 seconds. And God, I wish I could do that, man. I, Fifteen minutes later, I will wake up and I feel like I slept all night, and I'm totally rejuvenated. Any stress is just gone, and I'm I'm re-energized, clear-headed again. And that's you know, I mean, of course, I I love rock music. I love sometimes I just like I would love to just rock out with really loud music, Zeppelin. Heck like, yeah. Eric, Eric, songs, that kind of thing. I,
4: can't.
3: Usually when I'm in the car on a highway with, with the windows up by myself. So uh, you can't, yeah.
4: sleep then. <laughs> I can't
3: sleep then. And that's usually, I, sometimes I do it so that I don't sleep while I'm driving. I just like crank it super loud. Anyway, those are a couple things of things. Awesome. To- All right.
1: So if I'm coming to Boston, cause you live in Boston, is that right? Yes. Okay. What restaurant would you take us to?
3: My favorite restaurant is a restaurant called um, Davio's, which is a Northern Italian steakhouse. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, It's it's my favorite restaurant. My wife's favorite restaurant is a restaurant called Mistral. So I would take you, which is a, you know, a a really sort of just a really high quality steakhouse. It's not a chain steakhouse. Um, Those are, those are the, If if anybody wants to come and have a really nice dinner, I would take you to one of those two restaurants.
1: Awesome. Well, I tell you what, thank you, Ken, very much. This has been, you know... First off, our listeners are very thankful you came on here. We appreciate that a lot, and you know we're really excited to hopefully get this out there, let people know more about the corporate value metrics and kind of you know what you guys are doing, and and obviously the CVGA designation. And uh, can't thank you enough for joining our podcast tonight. Uh, We really appreciate it, and hopefully we can have you again sometime. We'd love to have you.
3: Anytime, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I, I love this is a topic that's my hobby and my world, and I love I love to talk about it. I probably talk too much. So if I did, i sorry about
1: that. <laughs> no, we love it because this is our space too, right? And and, and all of our listeners here, just so you know, are our business owners or they're in this, or in this space. They want to get into doing business valuations or business brokering. And so this has really been helpful. I mean, educational on so many levels. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, yeah,
4: great. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah, and I'm off camera,
0: Ken,
3: but thank you again. All right, Dylan, you're welcome. Thanks,
1: guys. Thank you. you. Hey,
0: guys, it's Cal here. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the How To Business Show. If you would like to stay up to date with upcoming episodes and what we're doing behind the scenes, make sure to follow us on social media. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and our website, www.htbshow.com. Finally, you have a story to share or some feedback for the show, feel free to contact us at HTBS at Important links for today's episode can be found in the description. From all of us on the How To Business team, thank you for listening and see you next time.